there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guests are Meg Linehan of The Athletic and Molly Hensley-Clancy of The Washington Post. You can sign up now for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. Really appreciate your support with that, so check it out. Now, here's my interview with Meg Linehan and Molly Hensley-Clancy. Our guests now are two tremendous journalists. Meg Linehan is the U.S. Women's National Team and NWSL National Writer for The Athletic. Molly Hensley-Clancy does sports investigations for The Washington Post. On Thursday, Linehan wrote a story detailing allegations of sexual coercion and abuse and systemic failures to respond to North Carolina coach Paul Riley, who has been fired. On August 11th, Hensley Clancy wrote a story detailing repeated examples of verbal abuse and systemic failures to respond to Washington coach Richie Burke, who has been fired. She has continued to write stories covering turmoil inside the Washington spirit. Thanks so much to both of you for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Lots to talk about here. First <laughs> off, I just uh, I want to say congratulations from uh, for the tremendous work that you're doing, both of you, which is causing real change. Uh, and I hope lasting change um, in the NWSL. And, and we'll see where it goes from here. It's already caused significant change. Um, I kind of want to just have a discussion here about topics that come up as a result of this tremendous reporting you've done. And maybe just to start, I would say you both had brave sources who were willing to go on the record for your stories with their names on it. What can you say, and I know you can't say a ton, but what can you say about how these stories came together? Yeah, I can start. Um, I... I, this started when I heard that um, a player had left the spirit because of, of Burke's uh, treatment of them. Um, and I think that along with, as with so much of this stuff, it had kind of been an undercurrent that, that people sort of knew about but hadn't spoken about. Um, and I, once I heard that, I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I, con- how do I confirm this and how do I figure out if this has happened to other players? Um, and I, with, with I went to Kaya McCullough pretty quickly because I I actually written a story with Kaya um, when I was at the I was doing some freelancing for the New York Times and she had just been you know really wonderful and I had seen what she had been talking about on Twitter and I thought you know if anyone's gonna put their name to this it's gonna be Kaya um, and you know she was really really scared I think that that's you know and she said this it was the scariest thing she's ever done. Um, but she almost right away was like, I- I'm going to think about doing this. Um, and then it was kind of just a matter of, you know, finding other players who are willing to corroborate what she said. And, you know, they were, a lot of them were still in soccer, so they weren't necessarily willing to go on the record. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm grateful to, to Kai and also to the players who, you know, weren't able to put their name on it. They really just like could not do it, but they, they wanted to. I think for, for my story, what, I don't think that happens without me being around the league since the league started. I've known Mana Shim since the 2013 season. I mean, I, I wrote a story about her coming out and her incredible rookie season that 
the the tail end of the 2013 season and I think she was also a player where this was really early on I was I was you know not even freelance writing really I was writing for the equalizer I'd started as a photographer and then started writing and so this was really early into my long journey through women's soccer but I think Mon and I understood each other as actual human beings in that moment which I think is sometimes a, a thing that's kind of lost when you're trying to write stories about someone or they're looking at you and like, can I trust you, right? So I think that there was kind of that mutual level of trust and, and we went back a while. But obviously for for my story, this is one that has been a very long journey for the two players involved, both Manishim and Sinead Farley. And Sinead and I had not really talked at length, if at all. Like I know that I've passed, you know, I've covered the NWSL. So we've definitely crossed paths, but for the two of them, this has been a very long road, and they have tried to raise their voices before in kind of official channels, right? And then earlier this year, directly to the league asking for new investigations. And then when when they still weren't heard, they had to make the decision of who do we think can tell this story? And I think that was obviously a big decision for them to make, and I, I cannot express how deeply I appreciate that they put their trust in me to tell it. But I also think that a story like this, to have the background of both WPS, but also just kind of that so much of the story rests on the history of women's soccer and the culture that we've seen in women's soccer and what we're going through in this moment. So to have kind of that whole picture, I think was, was definitely a huge part, but I don't think, the story happens maybe in quite the same way if if Mon and I don't have that kind of connection from from almost a decade ago. For both of you, I'm wondering, there's so many systemic failures here by the NWSL, by you know, team owners, team officials. Do you think those systemic failures, including not acting over the years, including this year, helped lead to the players being more willing to speak to you for these stories? For me, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Just in terms of what we have seen from, but I think it's been happening now for, you know, maybe about a year, right? And and what is so remarkable is, yes, there are two players on the record. Also, I think Alex Morgan deserves credit for backing up Monashim and her part of this, right? But also knowing now her role in getting the anti-harassment policy put into place. That's a whole story that I could not even barely touch in this story because it would have been so lost in, in everything else I'm trying to report. But Alex Morgan is a huge part of this. But also I talked to so many other players and they it did not matter if they were still playing out of the game, still in soccer, out of soccer. There was still so much fear around what consequences there might be, especially regarding Paul Riley. Like, there is a certain level of fear around what, because of Paul Riley's influence, right? We wanted to really show that in the story of what his name, what his wealth carries in the sport. And it was very clear talking to everyone of just, please, I don't want my name on this. And and can you make sure that it won't lead back to me. And I think that that was a very real space to navigate. Yeah. And I had, I had very similar experiences um, where, you know, especially I also did a story where I talked to a lot of employees at the spirit. Um, 
a number of current employees, people who had recently left, and the fear was was huge. And you know, it's a sim. I think in some ways a similar dynamic. Although Riley's been in the league for so much longer, but I do think it's something that NWSL, you know, has to reckon with because. Um, you know, they can say they have these policies in place now, but we, you know, we were both writing these stories when these policies were in place and it wasn't, it, it hadn't worked. They still needed to go to the media. Um, and, you know, it's not something that especially NWSL players do lightly to, you know, to go on the record with this kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think that, you know, they can say all they want about, about, you know, these policies, but the reality of the fear that we both dealt with is, is something that they're going to have to figure out. I also think, you know, the story that I wrote ends with this quote from Sinead Farley saying, there's this term, it's called institutional betrayal, and I learned it because of this. And there was really no quote, no other quote we were ever ending with, because I think those two sentences so perfectly sum up what happened of trying to, not even just first that pressure of feeling silence, but when they do feel like they can raise their voice and raise it directly to a person in power. And then you get an email that says, thank you for this email, I wish you all the best. (laughs) What's also striking to me, you know, we've seen these stories to some extent for a while. I mean, like Magic Jack, that's like a decade ago, all the stuff that happened with that situation. We'd seen reports in the past about Richie Burke doing the same stuff with the Washington spirit, yet he continued to coach the Washington spirit. Uh, People knew about, at least a few people knew about investigations into Paul Riley at the Portland Thorns years ago. And yet he was still able to get another job in the NWSL. Just last night, Molly reports that Fareed Benstiti, part of the reason he left earlier this season, the job with the OL Reign is because he was asked to by one of the owners Uh, for his resignation because he was doing the same sort of body shaming that he did with Lindsey Horan years ago at PSG, which we all knew about. I mean, like, we could kind of go on here, but like... There's more. There's more in that list. There's more in that list. You know, like, that's that's just wild to me that this is, like, this stuff is still happening. And then, and then when these guys are, are pushed out, the public statement is, we wish them the best in their future endeavors. Yeah, what's your sense of all this, guys? Like, I, like, I, I, okay, so one of, the, one of the, I've been working on this story for months, right? Before the Washington Spirit stuff really, really started hitting. So one of the big pieces of reporting, and I know Molly and I had talked about it kind of at that specific moment is, and this is such a small footnote in the overall scheme of things, but Assistant coach Tom Torres for the Washington Spirit, I think, is a really good example of that, where you read that press release that the Washington Spirit put out, and it's basically just like, we wish him all the best in future endeavors, right? Thank you for your time. And then we were finally able to report a year later that, according to multiple sources, there was completely inappropriate behavior at a party following the Challenge Cup, right? And it, it, it took a year, like, it took Molly how long to get the information about Freed Benstiti confirmed, right? It, it takes time sometimes, but I think even we saw with the original statement that Portland Thorns put out about Paul Riley, right? The first sentence of that is a quote from the general manager, Gavin Wilkinson, basically saying, we, we thank him, right? Everybody thought that was about results. And then to have 
Aaron Lines, who was then vice president of Western New York Flash, confirmed to me, well, we knew there was an investigation that nothing unlawful had happened, that league policy was followed when we hired him, that his contract was approved following league policy. That to me, I mean, there's a lot happening in all of this stuff, right? But the the concept that there could be some sort of knowledge that we are releasing a coach for some specific reason that is not shared publicly, and which I thought was actually, I do want to give full credit to Racing Louisville FC for when Christy Holly, his contract was terminated. They did at least publicly say for cause, and they were the only team to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was looking at the spirit internally, this this term old boys club kept coming up. And, you know, when I reported on what the investigation found, which the NWSL did not disclose, you know, I had to go and, and figure out what it said. Um, but the what they found was that it was this culture of the owners um, and, you know, the coach, Richie Burke, Larry Best, Steve Baldwin, protecting each other. And that that culture prevented people in the organization, players from speaking up about Burke and other things. And I think that you kind of, that's a microcosm, it seems like of what you're seeing in the NWSL, where you have people protect, and often men, but not always, protecting each other's careers at the expense of players' voices. And I mean, this is like obviously not quite as serious a situation, but I I mean, I remember when the Larry Nassar hearing happened in Congress, I saw a tweet and I wish I remembered who said this, but someone was like, think about how much the system worked to protect this one guy. He wasn't famous, he wasn't rich, he was just a guy. And at the expense of all these women, everything, the FBI, they all work to protect this guy. And I just see that happening over and over and over in the NWSL too, where the question is, how do we protect this guy, whether he be any of the coaches we've reported on or other people in the league, how do we protect him? And the question is not, how do we protect players? How do we listen to players? All those things. It seems to me like the approach from NWSL teams and the NWSL league office and commissioner has been cover your ass over protect women. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the NWSL Players Association is the one that's about to pay for an anonymous hotline to report potential complaints instead of the league is a pretty revealing thing to me that the league was un- unwilling to do so. And yes, they have a they have a HR email, right, to email complaints to, but I think you have to acknowledge the fear that is going to play a role in report. And it, I, that's, that's in any reporting mechanism. And also, I think just kind of that understanding of if you are reporting something to HR, there's no guarantee. HR is not necessarily going to be your friend. HR is there to protect the company. You are trying to report behavior to your own company, right? Not to necessarily someone who is going to be independent and say to that person in power, no, you actually have to pay attention to this. So there's there's a few levels here, but I do think from the fact that, you know, in 2015, and to be fair, I do want to put the context of for some of this stuff, it's happening at a very different point in the NWSL, right? And the, the league front office has always been understaffed, and I don't think that's an excuse for uh, everything that's happening. But in 2015, really, the only... Jeff Plush is commissioner, and Jeff Plush is also just kind of a dude in an office <laughs> who is just controlled by the owners, right? Like, there was no power in that commissioner role 
at all, right? And now maybe we can have a debate about how much power there is in the NWSL commissioner role and what role Lisa Baird has played. But in 2015, Jeff Plush honestly is also probably a direct employee of U.S. soccer because that's also when U.S. soccer is the managing, the manager of NWSL. NWSL is not like an independent entity at that point in time. Was his office in Soccer House? Yes. They, I don't think they got an office until later. So also, who's advising Jeff Plush legally? Is it a U.S. soccer legal representative at that point, right? There's, I mean, there's still questions here of how, how, right? And that was one of the central questions when we started reporting this is, how do you go from Portland to Western New York? And mm-hmm. I think we got kind of the start of that answer, but this is, we don't understand how coaches are hired in the NWSL. We don't understand what the vetting procedure is. We don't understand if they say there's a Rooney rule, right? Is there actually, like, we don't have any of this information and all of it keeps coming back to this idea of transparency. I mean, one thing we do know is that every year it seems like there are more and more men being hired to coach women's soccer, whether it's collegiate, professional. This is a real issue. And I I think it's tied to the growth of the sport and there's more money in it. But there's very few women who are head coaches in the NWSL. There's very few women who are head coaches in international soccer for the top teams. Is, you know, and then you've got teams like the one run by Jill Ellis that's starting in San Diego and Angel City, which eventually hired a woman to be the head coach for the team. Um, How do you see that part of all of this? It seems like you're getting more and more men coaching. Yeah, I mean, I think I found it interesting to kind of watch. I think that there has finally been real pressure to hire women coaches. um, And you saw that with Angel City, for sure. Um, One thing I found interesting in that conversation is I keep hearing people saying, well, you know, where are the qualified women? There just aren't enough qualified women in the league. There aren't enough women that can do this. And I I think that on some level that's true. I also think that like a lot of these men, Richie Burke had never coached women professionally. Like Richie Burke came from youth soccer. I, you know, Larry Best, the spirit executive, he'd never even worked in professional sports. So, you know, men and and even the spirit hired Ben Olson, who I think is incredibly well-respected, you know, but they hired him as far as I know without any process that involved interviewing women or people of color for that role. Um, and he himself was said, I, I don't really, I, I don't know as much about women's soccer as other people. So I think he has a lot of experience in soccer. All this to say, I think men are getting a lot of chances to prove themselves. I think they're getting, you know, you just see this willingness to kind of take a chance on a youth coach and sometimes it works out. Um, but if he, I mean, he, he's called 19 year old boys the F word, it, it probably doesn't work out. That's what happened with Richie. Um, but I mean, I, I, women are not getting those same chances. You know, for a woman, you have to be, there's, there's a very tiny universe of women who are the most qualified and no one's hiring women out of youth soccer, really. Although the Spirit did just hire a woman assistant coach from that world. So I'll, I'll give them the credit for that. I definitely think, you know, there is kind of the challenge of the pipeline, right? And I, I've, I've thought about this a bit too. And we're starting to see, NWSL players especially kind of move through the coaching pyramid at at this point, right? And some of that actually is being supported by the Jill Ellis scholarship that U.S. Soccer put into place. So I think we're going to start seeing the results of that, like someone like Allie Krieger going through that program, Heather O'Reilly's going through that program, right? Like we're seeing big players too do this as well. 
But there's also this concept, not just of not giving women a chance, but like someone like Becca Moros, right, who was coaching, assistant coach at Gotham FC, and then immediately gets poached by college where there's a lot more safety and security, right? Because another element of this is I go back to 2013 NWSL and I see the the coaching path of someone like Lisa Cole, who was coaching the breakers, kind of lost the locker room, right? And then was never given a chance again, even though she's got that coaching background, right? And she's kind of bounced around the international game, coached with the Houston Dash a bit. But she's not getting multiple looks the way that someone like Christy Holly is, or even Paul Riley is, even after not very good NWSL records, and they're still getting hired again. It's not like you're hiring like a, a person that want, when Western New York Flash hire him, they just missed the playoffs. Like they they did not do well that season. So you're giving a, a second, third chance to a a guy that has not produced results over a woman in any form. I feel like for our listeners who don't follow women's soccer, I should just say Christy Holly is a man. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair. I had to. My editor did not. My editor edited my story to be like a male coach, Christy Holly, because. <laughs> That yeah. it's good to specify yeah <laughs> that's a good reminder just as someone who lives it of right i know that yes <laughs> i i know there are a lot of factors that go into producing stories like the ones you've written lately and, and just for for folks who aren't like in the weeds on media literacy and, and like i just want everyone to know how high degree of difficulty the stories have been that you both have done recently it's it's like the highest of what we do in our profession it's just so impressive and requires so much work and relationship building um but you know all the factors that go into producing stories like this among those factors i don't think it's a coincidence that the majority of the stories we've seen about abuse in women's sports are being reported and written by women uh do you agree with me that it's not a coincidence and what can we take away from that i mean it's definitely not a coincidence um i think you know meg was talking the very first thing she talked about was trust and i think that obviously there can be trust between male reporters and, and women but it just is easier to establish that trust relationship. It's something, I, I mean, I've, I've certainly been in situations where coaches have had inappropriate relationships with people I play. I mean, I, I was able to really relate and have these conversations and I think, um, you know, understand some of this stuff. Um, so I think that matters. I mean, I think that just the pure, like, out, outlets giving women reporters the time and space and money um, and time and time to do this is like, so huge and it and that's you know when we talk about why this stuff hasn't come out earlier some of it does have to do with not that the quality of the reporters that have been covering it it's the investment from outlets um and and everything like that and i mean i i think that you know one thing i want to mention when you talked about um you know the investment that goes into these stories meg and i have talked about the like the lawyers and the process of lawyers looking at this stuff and vetting it vetting every claim we make i think readers sometimes don't fully understand you know how much is supported every sentence you read is supported often by more than you understand um and so you know just to, in terms of standing up these stories like so much has been done to make sure that every sentence stands up um, and that's in both of our situations. So I really appreciate the post for giving me the time to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely the same. I also think 
you know, in, in addition to the legal stuff, I am not an investigative reporter. That is not my title. I am an NWSL in U.S. Like, I, I'm just a, in theory, I should be writing about soccer, right? Like, that's actually what my job is, is to write about soccer. And I have not done a huge amount of writing about soccer. As of late, I keep going to games and being like, wow, I sure do wish I could write about this. It would be fantastic. Um, but for me, I think it was not just the resources, right, that got put behind the story. And again, this is a, a huge, huge, long process and multiple editors and the art department. I also said the, the photographer the that was, I, I mean, honestly, can I just say when, when I got sent the photos of Sinead from that photo shoot, like I started crying, truly. Um, but someone like Katie Strang that I was able to work with on the story basically was, I, I cannot tell you how many days I just called her and just said, I need to either reassurance, right? Or I need help figuring out what, what my path is here or, okay, I have this piece. How do I get to the next piece, right? So she's someone who's done it before. Also, I think she was able to emotionally support me through some of the beats because I will tell you, Wednesday morning, I woke up and I legitimately thought I was going to throw up while I was brushing my teeth from stress. And then I woke up on Thursday in a very different mental place. And she was able to kind of walk me through, these are the emotions that you're going to feel as you're working on this. So that's a, a hugely helpful piece. And I just also hope that, you know, the players who have spoken to us, I think have been trying to take care of themselves and each other. And I think it's been really reassuring to kind of see that happening on both sides of the story because obviously like yes there is pressure on us to get this right and to make sure that it's good and locked before it runs but for all the stress that I'm feeling like I I can't even imagine what the players that I'm talking to are feeling that day before the story runs because I mean for someone like Sinead Farley this has been a decade of her life that day has been a very long time coming. So yeah, it, it resources are, are huge, but there's also just kind of this whole world of emotions too that go along with it. How are Sinead and Mana doing based on all you know, of this? I we we talked a, definitely a bit yesterday. I think good. I think generally our our shared mood was overwhelmed in a really good way. I think that they were very very. Um, overwhelmed in a very positive way by how much they felt people had their backs, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think especially when kind of the wave of player commentary came in, and obviously, you know, I spoke to Alex Morgan for the story, but Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, Megan Klingenberg, I mean, like the list of players that really weighed in, um, I think was just a very reassuring, reassuring thing. Because there is, like, the, I think there is that kind of dual thing of I want this out in the world but also I have no idea what Thursday is going to be like I want to re-emphasize to listeners uh, a bit of what Molly was saying that every word in a story goes through a process every allegation is like so much work goes into an investigative story in particular and I don't know how often if the public thinks about that, especially at a time when there's so much nonsense and untrue things on social media that doesn't go through a process. So I like in, in on a much more, you know, more minor scale, I was trying to explain this a little bit a few weeks ago 
on the Weston McKinney situation when all of these fans on social media were coming after U.S. soccer media people covering the team saying, you know, you're terrible at your job. How come you haven't reported anything on what McKinney did? All the while, for a 24 to 48-hour period, we're making calls and trying to go through a process to get to be able to report something, which eventually that process resulted in people reporting it, reporters going through that and dealing with lawyers and, and all of that. And at a time when there's so much that isn't factual that gets out there on, on social media, this process is more important than ever. So I, I would just say that. Um, um, I guess another question I would have is, where do we go from here? I, I, I mean, are, are we, I would think more stories are going to come out now. And it seems like whether it's players like Nadia Nadim deciding to put something out about her history with the NWSL um, and Sky Blue yesterday, like, I, I think players are feeling more emboldened now, it seems like, to 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 come come out publicly and say, you know, this is stuff that's happening. You know, where, where do you see this going? I think that's the million dollar question, right? Because I one of the, again, people have been quiet for so long because there is this fear of if I speak up, am I going to be fired or, or traded? Or, you know, is my career over? Is my, are my teammates careers over? Is the league over? Right. And the one thought that I just kept having with myself for months and months was the NWSL as a concept, as an idea, as it exists right now, is not sustainable. And we have seen that proven time and time again. And the NWSL as an idea is different than the structure is different than the players, right? And so do I think the league needs to get burned down as like an actual thing? Probably not. Do I think the the sport itself, the players, like we essentially the players have to save the league from itself at this point. And we have to figure out a path forward. So I think there have to be consequences. There has to be this reckoning, right? Like the reckoning word is something the, the Players Association director, Megan Burke, used in a story with me with the the Richie Burke in a very confusing fashion of names, but, you know, this idea of a, a beginning of a reckoning this season. And so much of this, I think, is the league is not what male owners have built. The league is the players. And there is a path forward to saving this particular league or a professional league in the United States because it is bigger than this front office, this structure, this whatever. There is something still here worth saving because it comes down to the players. And that's, that's I think, kind of the one guiding thought I've had through this time period of this is still too good and, and important to fail because fundamentally at its heart, it is the players. And I think that that's exactly why they're speaking up. They're doing it out of a love for the league, not as it exists right now, but as it, what it could be. And I think that Kaya has said that. I think that, you know, I think a lot of players feel that, that like, you know, that whole outpouring yesterday was directed at the league, but it was also like, we have to fix this and like we need to do I think Becky Sauerbrunn said you know this we need to be we need to be better than this we need to you know fix this and so they're they're coming at it from the same place um it's just the question of whether the league listens honestly
So we're winding down here with Meg Linehan and Molly Hensley Clancy. Uh, we're recording this for listeners, just so you know, at 1040 a.m. <laughs> Eastern on Friday. And look, news is still happening um, and and probably will continue to happen in the coming days. Um, and so we've just been notified uh, of a report that all the NWSL games will not be played this weekend. Um, and we're in real time here, <laughs> y'all. So, um, <laughs> like, thoughts? <laughs> I, this has been kind of, I think, in the works for a bit. I know the, obviously, <laughs> we haven't even mentioned the fact that there are CBA negotiations happening right now, right? Mm-hmm. There's so, there's an absurd amount of things playing into this moment at this moment in time. And I know that players across the league, I think we're reacting very, very strongly to kind of everything. You know, y- yesterday was kind of like the door was already open, but I think yesterday kind of kicked down the door of we need to have this. We need to have this look at ourselves. Right. So it doesn't surprise me. I do think you know, the word strike was at least discussed uh, by folks leading up to this moment. And honestly, like, no one's going to be watching the games for the games this weekend. And the first game scheduled for this weekend was North Carolina Courage hosting the Washington Spirit, which was not an intentional choice on our part, I promise. But how, and every single team scheduled to play Friday night, North Carolina, Washington Spirit, Racing Louisville FC, Gotham FC has had to release an employee this season. Four for four. One additional point I was going to make from a media perspective is that, am I right that both of you work in positions that are essentially newly created for like, like that didn't exist before you started doing what you do? For me, I, I mean, I think that I there were sport. There was a sports investigations reporter, Will Hobson, who's wonderful. Um, I do think that you know the the ability to focus on women's sports more, and it's not explicit, but that's certainly what I've been doing. Has is definitely something that's that's new. And the Post has had good coverage of, of women's sports. You know, I think we have we have a ton of women reporters covering men's teams as well, which is really important. But yeah, that that particular you know investigative reporter who's looking at women in sports. Um, as a main focus, that's definitely new. I mean, when I when I took the role at the Athletic, I was the only full time women soccer reporter in the country, and now I think we. I would like to say that we're up to three. <laughs> I will count Sandra Herrera and CBS Sports, even though sometimes she gets put on Europa League or whatever it is that they they get her to cover. But um, the fact that we were able to to hire Steph Young at the athletic as well to and god bless steph who has been picking up the slack as i work on this story and has been doing so much scene setting around it in terms of kind of landscape stuff but also you know big important reporting on conditions for referees too like there's still all of these other stories that need to get told um but yeah i i I cannot the fact that the athletic believe that there should be a a full-time women's soccer reporter in this country with the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL, I think, was a big, big step here that we didn't know was going to play into <laughs> where we're at October 1st, 2021. But, yeah, it just, it really is that we need we need more people in the space that are, are doing it and being paid to do it because so much of this has 
has not been covered because you have people trying to cover the sport while still working 40-hour, 50-hour jobs. Yeah, I, I just think it's important to note that we talk about systemic problems in the NWSL, but these are systemic issues as well in media that good decisions, smart decisions are being rewarded with the journalism that you two are doing. So uh, I think it's worth pointing that out as well. Meg Linehan is the U.S. Women's National Team and NWSL National Writer for The Athletic. Molly Hensley-Clancy does sports investigations for The Washington Post. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's just, I think it's also really good that Molly and I got to do this together. I'm very, very appreciative of that. (laughs) (laughs) Out of Twitter DMs and into speaking to each other. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Meg Linehan and Molly Hensley-Clancy, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including a big feature on Jesse Marsh and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. Can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that and for listening to the pod. See you next time. (laughs) 